dogs will devour you. Season 1 recap of This House Will Devour You. Welcome, come in. There's a spare chair there by the fire if you want to grab it. Good. Everyone's sitting comfortably and got something to drink? Then let us begin. You've been asking me about that burned out ruin of an old house that's punched against the skyline of the Blackwater Valley just up the road here from our little village at Kilfawn. Well, I'd stay away from that if I were you, especially this time of year, as the days get shorter and darker. You'll have heard the stories, people foolish enough to poke around those runes going missing over the years, that it's our very own Hellfire Club, where the devil himself appeared, that strangers come on the solstice to carry out dark rituals. Well, Something appeared there all right, a long time ago now, and I weren't no devil, it was something much worse. But let's introduce our cast of innocents and not-so-innocents. Here comes Captain John Ross across the Irish Sea, beset by a terrible storm that nearly does for him. You write short story if it did though, eh? It's his first time back to Ireland in ten years, and he's nervous about what sort of reception he's going to get. He's arriving home to a country that spent the last decade fighting Britain, then fighting itself. Captain Ross, however, fought with the British Army in the Great War. A decorated hero, no less, and carries some mental scars still. Here across the ship's cabin from him is Lord Clonlaw. Tall, thin, spider-like, sick in body, driven mad with ambition and grief. For his sons lie buried in the green fields of France, sacrificed to that self-same war. Some would say that this killing storm was raised by the old sea god, MacMahon MacLear. But if there's truth in that, well, he was bested by another god, the one Lord Clonlaw worships. Clonlaw is a paid-up member of the Society of Esoterica, after all. Before the storm hit, though, he was probably brooding on more domestic matters. His sister had sent her daughter, Lily Southcliffe, to stay with him for the winter hunting season. It is obvious to him that she hopes Clonlaw will introduce his niece to suitably wealthy and appropriate young men of marriageable age. He is more concerned that she will get in the way of his nefarious plans. These two men, both marked by the war, do not know each other. But they will before this story ends. Oh, by God, they will. Here is Elizabeth Sanderson at home in Wiltshire. Picture a well-to-do lady, pretty despite her pallor, as she lies listlessly on a couch, wishing she was well enough to ride her beloved pony Dimples. She should be at John Ross's side on that boat, being tossed and turned by that storm. But she took ill and is resting at home under smothering care of her mother. But don't get me wrong now, she and John are very much in love and are engaged to be married. At this moment, she is very interested in the vans arriving at the neighbouring house, which has stood empty for some time. This new occupant is Roland Osborne, mischief maker, photographer, 
supposed man of science, and soon to be helping the police with their inquiries for activities related to historical artefacts of dubious provenance. Before that'll come to pass, he'll stir the pot and introduce innocent young Elizabeth to the Society of Esoterica and set her on a very dangerous path. A mischief maker, as I said. The Society of Esoterica again. What is it, you ask? Exactly what it sounds like. A boys' own club for wealthy dilettantes to dabble in arcana and give themselves a macabre trill. Here in Waterford is Elizabeth's plump younger brother George, dithering between his two favourite pastimes, hunting terrified animals on his horse and driving cars very fast. A right terror on the local roads he was said to be. He'll pick the car as he needs to be off soon to collect John. George is busy doing up a house he inherited from his father. Yes, you guessed it, Kilfawn Hall. That which stands in blackened ruins above us now. Then it was merely dilapidated. George and Elizabeth's father, Frederick Sanderson, was an amateur archaeologist and probable member of, you guessed it, the Society of Esoterica. He and Clonlow were once friends. Frederick had to pretend to give it all up, as Elizabeth's mother was very much a God-fearing Christian woman. No truck with pagan nonsense for her. But he knew what he was doing when he bought Kilfawn Hall. Well, almost, as it got him killed, allegedly. Probably by Lord Clonlaw, who realised his old friend and now rival had pulled a fast one right under his nose. A nasty piece of work was Charles Clonlaw. So John arrives at Kilfawn Hall, half of which is habitable in November 1925. And there's a full complement of maids and cooks and such like. There is a Mr. Simmons in charge of restoring the gardens. Elizabeth's great aunt Edith arrives. She will soon be very unimpressed with the men when they start invoking the supernatural to explain the increasingly odd goings on. But is also keen to interrogate John and Lily regarding their affections and suitability for her great-niece and nephew. Things, though, are beginning to kick off. A local boy went missing just before John got there. It'll turn out that this boy was seen messing around in the north wing of the house, where the main construction work was still ongoing. Now, if you take nothing else from this tale, take this. If you ever have the urge to visit that house up on the ridge, Whatever you do, stay away from the North Wing. If ever a place was cursed in hell, then it is that place. Frankly, if you ever do have the urge to visit that place, I advise you to get on the first bus out of here and never look back. Then, some hunting dogs go missing. They do that around here still. While John and George are looking for them, they come across a forgotten ancient mound hidden in an overgrown valley. Now this thing is nothing much to look at, but it gives off a seriously creepy vibe. And it may be that John, with his shell shock, the poor lad, is particularly sensitive to the evil within the mound, as he soon starts hearing things and the edge between dream and reality becomes blurred. An electrician working on the house disappears and John is unsure whether he killed the poor fellow 
Or have you witnessed some terrible crooked-backed old man doing it? This old man has an endless stream of falling pebbles for eyes and two butcher's knives that he loves to scrape off each other while chasing John through the house. On top of that, John is now paranoid that the locals, particularly three men called Murphy, Mihal, and Porig, are out to get him. Captain John Ross is not in a good place. No, indeed. On it goes. A student historian, Mr. Harrison, pricks his hand on the sickly hawthorn atop the mound and is never the same. Up digging in the gardens at night and holding conversations with himself. George is soon in a similar way after he is cut by an ancient ritual dagger while Lord Clonlaw has shown it to him. This is not accidental, this marking of George. Lord Clonlaw has decided that the mound holds the secret he has been looking for for so long, and he intends to sacrifice George in a blood ritual. Ah, uh, yes, thanks. I will have another pint. Ah, yes. That's lovely. As that man said, a pint of plain is your only man. So clever Clonlaw thinks he knows what's what now and why Frederick bought Kilfawn Hall? Because Clonlaw is seeking a deal with a terrible old god called Crom, and he believes Crom's altar is buried in the mound, that this is the missing piece he's been looking for all over Waterford. What does Clonlaw want? Well, not much really. Merely to raise and unleash the dark god upon the world in revenge for the death of his sons. Oh, and of course, power and renewed health in the new world order that will result. Not a man of small ambitions, is Clonlaw. His niece Lily, who by now has fallen in love with George, gets wind of his ploy and deliberately cuts herself with the knife, making of herself a sacrifice as well. Her intent is that it'll force Clonlaw to abandon his plans. Well... Clonlaw makes a cursory effort to protect her, which we'll come to, and having failed, decides, well, waste not, want not. And now, having excavated the mound, decides to use Lily for his blood magic instead. George and John mount a rescue attempt, but here we'll need to pause the action in Waterford and skip over to London. Elizabeth is there, staying with Celia, who's quite the party girl and very happy to introduce her country bumpkin cousin to the nighttime delights of London in the Jazz Age. While Elizabeth has taken to this with gusto and is feeling much better, thank you, she has also decided that the Society of Esoterica is where she will get answers as to what is going on in Waterford. There she meets Dr Hugh Rockfield, who is possibly a cad and a rake, but also seems to be the only one likely to help her. He certainly seems happy to take her out for dinner. Well, visits to psychics with him and Sue, and trips back home to root through her father's old papers. With the upshot that Elizabeth is turning into a true believer in this occult business. So much so, that she steals an ancient amulet from the Society's collection, under the nose of Lord Clonlaw himself, who is there seeking the same artefact as protection for Lily. Elizabeth sends this amulet to John for his and George's protection, though. Right. 
back to underneath the mound in Waterford, where the excavations seem to go impossibly deep. A massive storm has brewed up, a twin to the one that nearly sank John's ship. So our two lads are charging in to rescue Lily. However, Pori captures John and George at gunpoint. So I suppose John was right to think he was out to get him after all. Whatever is going to happen here needs to happen quickly as the excavations are flooding. Well, from Clonlaw's point of view, it's all a bit of a fatal anticlimax. They can feel Crom awake but not free, and John has vouchsafed a vision of the endless wars still to come, especially if Crom is freed. But the ritual doesn't seem to be working, even before they can get to the killing innocents bit. Anyway, John takes advantage of the confusion and his army training to free everyone, and himself and Lily and George leg it up the collapsing tunnels, leaving Porig and Lord Clonlaw to drown in mud and water underground. Good riddance, I say. They nearly don't make it out, but a last-minute rescue by some local men led by Mihal saves the day. So John was wrong about him, at least. Well, maybe. So it's all over, and everybody lives happily ever after. Not likely. Clonlaw was a fool, and Crom has his own ideas on what happens next. Elizabeth almost too late has worked it out. Clonlaw was right to think that the mound belonged to Crom, but was too quick to assume that the altar was still there. Her father, it seems, would have the last laugh, as he had realised the key was the house, not the mound. The builder of Kilfawn Hall, a Sir Finian Dashwood, had been a man with the blackest, most rotten heart, and as part of building the house, he had excavated the altar stone and set it in the main fireplace of the North Wing, surrounding the house with protective triskelions to keep the Dark God quiescent and trapped within, so that he and he alone could tap that power. Dashwood died alone and paranoid, however, and the long decay at Kilfawn Hall set in. The missing young boy, the electrician, even John himself, had all at some point bled a little blood onto that stone as Crom, awakened by Clonlaw's meddling, had steered and prodded to create little accidents so that he could take their sacrifices. John only escaping, and that was most likely because he wasn't completely in his right mind anyway. So Crom manifests in the house, a dead god scarier than any devil, with a mad historian now acting as his high priest. It was touch and go, really, whether Crom killed Lily and George to fully free himself, before John finally copped on to the altar and hearthstone, being one and the same, and smashed it with a handy workman's hammer. Mr. Harrison, the mad historian, fell into the fire and ran through the house, setting it ablaze. There's some as say, on the winter solstice, a screaming, burning man can be seen running through the woods at night. So there you have it. John was hospitalised for smoke inhalation, Lily was traumatised and withdrawn, George was in a coma, and Kilfawn Hall was burned to the ground. By the way, do you know what Kilfawn means in the original Irish? It long predates the building of the hall. Wild church. They knew things back then. And what of Elizabeth, you ask? Well, that young lady really got into the spirit of things, if you'll pardon the pun. She, in extremis, 
decided to do some ad hoc magic of her own to try and aid John and Waterford. Did it work? Who knows? But perhaps John would not have been able to resist and defeat Crom without whatever arcane energy Elizabeth sent his way. What I do know is she got an awful cold out of it for her troubles. Mind you, it was her own fault, as she reckoned the best way to perform this magical deed was skyclad. Now that's fancy lady talk for naked. Yep, she rode her pony up to some local ancient site completely starkers, like some modern Lady Godiva. And then, having got a taste for this esoterica business, she set off for Egypt of all places to search for a cure for her brother, an idea planted by Dr. Rookfield, who funnily enough was also coming along. So there you go, a lot of people died in that house, and I for one will never step in it, and I advise you all the same. Now my throat's parched after all that talking, it was another pint going. enjoyed what you've just listened to, please subscribe, review or share to help us flourish.